This is Bubba Land. And it, it's the home of the Bubba, the good old boys. Now that this is the heart of the KKK. I had met up with some of the good old boys in town. First time I met the fella was at Walmart. I was sitting outside having my pipe and he was out smoking his pipe. And we got chatting. And he starts telling me about this group he belongs to. And he just knew that I'd fit right in with the boys, that I'd be a good asset to their organization. It's a shoot off of the KKK. And they're asking me to join their group. And I love it, I do. It just kind of shows, you know, that there's... If people give you half a chance, they accept you without realizing. That was the late Robert Eads, a fascinating character from the 2001 documentary Southern Comfort. More on Mr. Eads a little later, but first, welcome to MF. I'm Matt Himes. MF stands for male-female, and this is a podcast, roughly speaking, about gender. Men and women, and how they understand each other, and get along, and how they don't. Seems like it's pretty bad out there. And talking about it often just makes it worse. The writer Helen Roy tweeted about this a while back. She wrote, 90% of sex wars discourse is unbelievably divisive, unhelpful, resentful, and uncharitable, not to mention untrue. It's like nobody wants the war to end. What does a general truce look like? Well, I think a truce looks like the end of a Shakespeare comedy. Everybody gets married. Because marriage is where a man and woman lay down their arms and start working together. And that is why you date, uh, to get married. Dating isn't meant to last that long. And the problem today is that we've forgotten why we date because those reasons are too pragmatic and boring. So now we're just dating for the sake of dating, which means perpetual conflict and endless, tedious negotiations. You have to talk about everything. Basically, we're all polyamorous now. Which nobody really likes. We pretend we do, but we're on the verge of snapping and killing each other because we're ignoring what we really want. We don't even know what we want half the time. And I want to say that I speak from experience. I don't give any advice that I haven't personally completely ignored and done the opposite of. I was so provincial in my default liberalism that when I was converting to Catholicism a few years ago, I was shocked to discover that some people really did wait until marriage to have sexual intercourse. It was like the first time I met a gay guy. Now, by then I had stumbled into marriage and children and was feeling pretty smug about how well things had turned out for me. So I still had this residual sense of superiority about these virgins getting married at 22. But then I had to ask myself, was my plan, uh, that is being too cool to have a plan, that much better? It wasn't. I got lucky and I really could have missed out. Now, I met my wife in college 
And the very first time we hook up, I mumble something like, I'm not really looking for anything serious right now. And she burst into tears. I guarantee she doesn't remember this. I do because I was freaked out. Oh, no, I broke her heart. Just what I was worried about. Obviously, that wasn't it. She wasn't that into me. I'm the one who made it weird by projecting this clinginess onto her. And so I ruined whatever carefree fun we were supposedly having. I'm the one who couldn't handle the relaxed courtship mores of the time. Anyway, we did continue to date for a few weeks, during which time we discovered that my father and her uncle had been best friends and roommates at the very same college just a few decades before. Almost as if fate had brought us together. But then I graduated, and she had another year because she'd taken some time off, and so we parted ways without there being any question of keeping in touch or trying something long distance. Because I couldn't be tied down. I had to experience the world, and so I did. And it was relatively fun. It didn't really add up to much, but I suppose it was fun. Ten years later, I'm living in a tiny basement room in Brooklyn, eking out a living on the margins of the TV business. And I go home to Allentown, Pennsylvania for Christmas. One night, I am lying on the bed in my childhood room, and for some reason, the girl from those last months of college pops into my head. And I indulge in a little maudlin nostalgia. There is another girl I'll never see again. Another fleeting romance for this rambling man. Isn't life just so sad and sweet and hard to master? And then, wouldn't you know it, a week later, I walk into a New Year's party on the Upper West Side at 1.30 a.m., and there she is. Matt? Matt Himes? Well, I can't tell you how many times I've heard her call my name since that night. Not always with such surprised delight, of course, but always with conviction. The conviction of someone who knows me. And even that night, I heard it, and it was a huge relief. She later told me that she first recognized me from my gait as I walked into the room. I found that impressive and a little moving. How many people, after all, know how you walk? The next day, I thought, what a wonderful chance encounter. Too bad I can't ever talk to her again. It was the usual reflexive, panicked spiral. What if it turns into something serious? I can't do something serious right now. I'm only 31. I got to get my shit together. At least get a new job and definitely a better living situation. Maybe I should take another improv class. And then this voice cut through all of the babble. Just call her and see what happens. And I did. And my life finally began. Now, I was still dragging my feet. We didn't get married until 35. First kid at 37. Third and final kid at 42. We pulled it off, but we were definitely cutting it close. And a lot of that, I'm sorry to say, was my fault. Now it's just kind of funny to think that after all of the rigmarole of my 20s, I ended up with the girl I dated when we were both 21. Why didn't we just get started then? 
the conventional wisdom I grew up with was, well, you need those years to figure out what you want. Mm, I disagree looking back. I didn't really figure anything out until I took the leap and committed. I used to tell this anecdote about the time my high school wrestling coach threw tampons at us. We had wrestled very poorly at a match the night before, and so we knew he was going to chew us out. And the next day at practice, he gathered us around and started out speaking with a sort of calm menace, which slowly built in intensity until he was yelling. And for the big finale, he reached into his pocket, pulled out a fistful of tampons and flung them at us with a flourish. There's more in the girls' bathroom if you need them. And then he stormed off. And I always thought this was a funny story because, of course, that kind of thing would never fly today. And also because, in retrospect, it's a little contrived and stagey. My coach had to procure the tampons. Did, did he ask his wife to borrow some? And then he had to make sure he remembered to bring them to school that day. I just imagined him patting his pocket reassuringly as he left the house. Oh, good. Don't want to forget my tampons for the big speech later. And you know what? He probably went back and got down on his knees and gathered them all up after the speech was over and we had gone. Why waste perfectly good tampons? But I have to admit that at the time, his speech was very effective, partially because this was suburban Pennsylvania in the 80s. We weren't that sophisticated, but also because he was an excellent wrestling coach who had earned our respect because he was extremely and uniquely demanding. The most important thing for you to demonstrate to him was mental and physical toughness. Now, you can and should win, but if you lose, it better be in spite of having pushed yourself to the limits of your stamina and your strength and your will. Did you leave everything you possibly could out there on the mat? Or were you a pussy? Do you need a tampon? Unlike pretty much everything else in our high school careers, wrestling wasn't just about achievement or resume building, uh, checking a box on the way to an already guaranteed bright future. Our coach used to say, nobody really cares if you win or lose or even if you try hard. Either way, you're going to go home to a hot meal and a nice warm bed to sleep in. But you'll know the truth. This was a matter of honor, specifically masculine honor. I was a mediocre wrestler, but that was a powerful motivator. And it was only in wrestling that I confronted this idea that you're a man, and being a man means meeting certain non-negotiable standards. I wasn't what you would call a jock. I was bookish, and I acted in plays and was into comic books and comedy. And outside of wrestling, I could make fun of macho posturing. But when a guy pins you, it's rather embarrassing and emasculating. Uh, you're admitting that he can put you on your back and keep you there, and you can't do anything about it. At the same time, six minutes is so long that at a certain point, you just want it to end. So it's hard to be ironic 
when you're out there on the mat. It does feel like a test. But off the mat, I had pretty much absorbed the assumptions of the post-sexual revolution culture. Men and women were basically the same. We didn't need any outdated rules for how to get along. But looking back, rejecting all this without even thinking about it didn't serve me that well. Maybe I could have used some more tampons thrown at me. Reliving the, um, I might as well claim it, trauma of being pelted with tampons as a young man reminds me of the question Gloria Steinem posed in a 1978 essay for Ms. Magazine. What if men could menstruate? Steinem writes, the answer is clear. Menstruation would become an enviable, boastworthy, masculine event. Men would brag about how long and how much. Boys would mark the onset of menses that longed for proof of manhood with religious ritual and stag parties. And it occurs to me that today we're seeing Steinem's hypothetical come true. Men can menstruate, at least those men who identify as trans women can. Trans women may not have a uterus or a uterine lining to shed, but they can complain of phantom period pains and they can make a show of carrying around extra tampons for any of their sisters who might need one, as Dylan Mulvaney does. Just as they can menstruate without actually having to bleed, these men can co-opt what femaleness benefits them without having to give up the perks of being a man. For all their clothing and makeup and mannerisms, most of these trans women are still identifiable as men, and that's by design. Trans visibility, after all, requires that you see and applaud. Does Dylan Mulvaney really want to pass as a woman? If that happened, we wouldn't know who he was. It seems more likely that Mulvaney wants all of the attention and status he gets as a caricature of femininity while still maintaining a certain, uh, let's say, male privilege. However, you'll notice that when trans visibility no longer serves the purpose of publicizing and enriching trans women, they quickly embrace trans invisibility. Any honest skepticism about the assumptions behind trans is greeted with the non-sequitur, trans women are women. And that is where you are invited to stop talking. Because if you continue, you have entered the realm of transphobia. Vice co-founder Gavin McInnes tried disputing the whole notion of transphobia way back in 2014, long before journalists and listicle writers transformed him into a white supremacist alt-right supervillain. His first cancellation was over an article he posted on Thought Catalog called Transphobia is Perfectly Natural. Reading it gives you a sense of how things have accelerated in the last nine years. McInnes begins by satirizing the pro-trans position. Wait, you're transphobic? You have a problem with a guy having his penis removed? He's a chick, you asshole. God fucked up and made him a dude. But luckily, we have the technology to fix that mistake. 
Obviously, McInnes is exaggerating for comedic effect, but the funny thing is, it really is that easy now. Now, maybe they used to have extensive psychological assessments to approve hormone therapy or surgery, but today you pretty much do just have to say, I'm a chick. McInnes is being blunt and avoiding euphemism and making jokes, but he isn't trolling. He is making an argument, and not without a little compassion. Gender dysphoria is a mental illness. Responding to it with surgical mutilation is wrong and harmful. And the idea that a man can become a woman by putting some clothes on and adding or subtracting body parts is demeaning to real women. If you search for this piece online, you won't find it, except for a PDF hosted on a random website. What you will find are all of the outraged reactions to it. And they are all the same. This article is transphobic. One writer even says, it's the most transphobic article ever written. Yes, well, the article is called Transphobia is Perfectly Natural. So maybe part of what McInnes is criticizing is the word transphobia and the way it's used to shut down legitimate concerns about trans. Nobody really seems to pick that up or to be interested in exploring that. A woman writing in Refinery29 said the article claims it's natural, normal, and wholesome to be transphobic. Yes, very good. That's a competent, literal rephrasing of his premise. I guess he did your job for you. He's transphobic. Case closed. And it is true that the vague charge of transphobia was enough to get McInnes fired from the ad agency he'd founded. I've always enjoyed McInnes' writing, and at the time when I read the article, I found it funny. Maybe a little mean, but I, I more or less agreed with his points, not that I ever would have said so publicly. I didn't think he deserved to get booted from his agency, but I also thought, why pick this hill to die on? Why go after this vanishingly small niche group? Just ignore them. They just want to be left alone. I might have been wrong about that. Um, but one striking thing about McInnes' article is it only mentions adults because trans kids weren't really a thing in 2014. Neither were non-binary kids, for that matter. I don't see a lot of transphobia in my affluent liberal community here in California. The teachers at school all have pronouns in their bios. A couple of years ago, a fifth grader transitioned, and the school sent an email home about the child's new identity. I remember hearing my then eight-year-old daughter talking about it in the back seat of the minivan with her friend. Yeah, she, she grew a penis. It's her DNA. And I know a few people now whose daughters uh, adapted they-them pronouns and gender-neutral names a year or two into puberty. I don't like to judge other parents. I have two teenage girls. They put me through the ringer. But that particular problem hasn't come up. And I suppose it's relatively harmless compared to trans. Maybe you figure it's a phase and they'll grow out of it. It's like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get punched. That said, I have talked to one of these dads, and it was weird how straight-faced he was about it. 
a lot of times you talk to another parent and there's this kind of camaraderie, you know, you know how it is with kids. Like, yeah, apparently she's vegan now. So she made us get a, get her a separate mini fridge. So her tofu isn't next to the hamburger. But in this case, there was none of that sort of solidarity. And this is a very normy, not very online guy. And then again, is this non-binary really that harmless? As a culture, especially on the left, we've been trying for years to help girls handle everything that comes up during puberty by telling them to ignore the media narrative that says, this is how a woman has to look and act, and if you don't look and act like this, you've fallen short. We want them to embrace their bodies and their femininity. Now we're going backwards. Oh, you're uncomfortable in your changing body that everybody sexualizes all of a sudden? Well, you can just opt out. Not to mention now, in addition to the usual hypersexualized portrayals of women, we've added these trans women who turn womanhood into a grotesque parody of itself. I, and enough of your identity is up for grabs in adolescence. I don't think we need to add sex. Just be punk or goth or wear men's suits like Diane Keaton and Annie Hall. Be creative. And you don't need your parents' approval. That is lame. Also, once you're officially non-binary, you're one step closer to being trans. So maybe you start taking hormones. Completely reversible. But they're not. Not to mention the fact that they change how you feel about yourself and nudge you towards the conclusion that you're a man. Or maybe the culture keeps getting more and more affirming and you don't grow out of the non-binary thing. And we'll just have a generation of adults living with self-imposed gender dysphoria light, never quite accepting themselves, which is sad. Another old acquaintance posted a family picture on social media a while back. After a split second of confusion, I realized that the teen girl I was looking at used to be his son. And he had a caption to the effect of, we see who you really are, you teach me something every day, I'm so proud to be your dad. And under this were the likes and comments celebrating uh, what a good parent he was. Again, not a particularly liberal or online guy. And I imagine the thought process was, of course, I'm going to post. I'm not ashamed of my child. Any other idea your teen has, though, you can push back against. It's your job. Oh, I'm not going to college. I'm going to hitchhike around the country like Jack Kerouac and write a novel. <laughs> no, you're not. Uh, hey, I need to let this homeless guy uh, set up a tent in our backyard. It's for a YouTube prank I'm doing. No. But with trans, parents are told, you can either have a trans kid or a dead kid. Leaving aside the fact that these claims of higher suicide rates for teens who can't transition are simply not true, what exactly is a trans kid anyway? The diagnosis seems to encompass all matter of emotional and psychological and sexual distress, and yet it all has the same cure. You need to let your child change their sex. You need to give them access to gender-affirming health care, which means hormones, surgery, counseling on how to pass as the other sex. 
Notice that the healthcare is never aimed at talking them out of making these drastic, irreversible changes. It's never about affirming the sex they were born with, because that would be conversion therapy. It's very easy to find horror stories from detransitioners, people who made these decisions at an early age with little to no pushback and now regret it. And it's shocking to me how easily pro-trans people dismiss these stories. Okay, that's one gay guy who thought he was trans and had his penis cut off. Can't he just get a phalloplasty? And some of the loudest voices in support of this so-called healthcare for trans kids are guys who transitioned in middle age. They don't look as feminine as they could have if they went on puberty blockers as a kid, so they project their regrets on trans youth. But they've had decades with a functioning male body to have sex, to have kids, and they have the option to retain a functioning male body. Sometimes they have kids after they transition. Compare them to Jazz Jennings, who went on puberty blockers at age 11 and had surgery at age 17. By the way, because of the blockers, his penis was too small to use to create his neovagina, so they had to use some of his colon, which it turns out makes his neovagina smell like feces. Anyway, Jazz Jennings will never have an orgasm or be able to procreate because of a choice he made as a high schooler. These middle-aged trans women do not have skin in the game like that. We're letting activists diagnose our children the efficient harnessing of parental guilt makes these kids quite useful shock troops in the fight to mainstream gender ideology. But as we've also seen, not everyone remains a true believer, even if they'll forever be marked by their brief enlistment to the cause. Call it uh, collateral damage. We're told to listen to trans people, but these days it's a one-way conversation. The only really acceptable question to ask is, how can I be less transphobic? Anyone with genuine curiosity about what these individual trans lives may be like is out of luck. But if we zoom out just a little, we can find thoughtful, patient, nuanced accounts of individual trans experiences. And we can also trace the way those experiences have been interpreted and exploited in order to create the ideological frenzy we face today. In spring 2001, I went to the Angelica Film Center in the East Village to watch a documentary that had just won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, Southern Comfort, not to be confused with Walter Hill's excellent 1981 suspense thriller of the same name. Director Kate Davis follows the final year in the life of a transgender man living in rural Georgia named Robert Eads. That was Eads in the clip I played in the beginning, and she is stunningly convincing as a man and as a stereotypical redneck at that. But she never had bottom surgery or a hysterectomy, which now haunts her because she's dying of ovarian cancer. We see her surrounded by what she calls her chosen family, mostly younger trans men, with whom she has a kind of fatherly relationship, as well as her girlfriend, a trans woman named Lola. We also meet her grown son 
and his grandson, who of course has only ever known Eads as a man, as his grandfather. Now, Eads knows she has very little time left, and she just hopes to stay alive long enough to attend, one last time, the yearly regional transgender conference from which the movie takes its name. Eads is understandably bitter about the difficulty she had getting a cancer diagnosis and treatment from local gynecologists. They were afraid it would hurt their business to have her as a patient. And this is certainly something one could label transphobia. But neither Eads nor the director has much interest in presenting her as a victim, or for that matter, as a saint. Eads is likable and compelling. She's funny and kind and loyal, and clearly loved and respected by her friends. And overall, she seems to be at peace. And she has a sense of humor about herself and how people see her, as you hear when she recounts the invitation to join the local offshoot of the Ku Klux Klan. Eads is also a red state homesteading gun owner with very traditional ideas about masculinity. At one point, she and Lola are looking at her childhood pictures, and she finds it hard to contain her disgust. Looking at a photo where she's all dressed up for Easter, she says, gag, a faggot, ten times over. It's kind of an ugly moment, but it's real, and it makes us see her far more clearly than the kind of trans hagiographies we get today. Because Southern comfort is about depicting a person in all their complexity, rather than about transmitting an ideology. Two years later, in 2003, Jennifer Finney Boylan's memoir, She's Not There, is published. Born James Boylan, Boylan reports a lifelong sense that he is, in fact, a woman. But he ends up falling in love and marrying and having children and keeping this part of himself hidden. She's Not There recounts his decision to transition, which included gender reassignment surgery in his late 30s. Boylan's wife, Deirdre, referred to as Grace in the book, is understandably upset and confused, but she accepts it and is still married to Boylan today. In the 10th anniversary edition of the book, she writes an afterword in which she says she's happy and doesn't miss the physical intimacy she had with her husband. Whether or not you find this credible, and I detect a little Stockholm syndrome, her bland acceptance does make her an exemplary trans wife. We never get their perspective in these stories, and they're certainly not allowed to feel betrayed for very long. There is one person in the book who does stop to worry about Boylan's wife, and that's novelist Richard Russo, Boylan's close friend and colleague at Colby College in Maine, where they both teach creative writing. Russo remains a loyal confidant to Boylan throughout his crisis, but when Boylan finally emerges as the fulfilled, healthy woman he was always meant to be, Russo can't quite accept the happy ending at face value. In a frank yet affectionate email exchange that Boylan reprints in the book, Russo acknowledges Boylan's newfound feeling of liberation, which he likens to getting out of jail, while wondering if Boylan isn't fooling himself. It's not that we want you to remain in jail. We prefer the other story, the one where you seemed happy, where Grace was happy. That you were miserable, we have to take on faith. That Grace is miserable now seems beyond question. 
By confronting Boylan with the pain he's caused his wife, Russo sensibly assumes that his transition was a choice. But in Boylan's telling, backed up by his psychiatrist, he has always been a woman. So his transformation into Jenny is inevitable and perfectly natural. Russo isn't convinced. You say you are Jenny, but to me, Jenny is somebody you need to be and want desperately to be and are determined to be. You insist Jenny is the real you, but you played the other role so long and so convincingly that we can't banish it. Here, you insist, is the real me, and yet the real you seems mannered, studied, implausible. That Jenny is the real you is something that I have to take on faith because the evidence of my senses suggests the opposite. Mannered, studied, implausible. Anyone who's honest has had this reaction at the sight of the average middle-aged trans woman. Rousseau's gentle skepticism here articulates the main reaction that most well-adjusted people have to trans. Not hate, not disgust, but disbelief. Rousseau simply thinks Boylan is wrong. Despite his elaborate physical and social transformation, Boylan is not a woman in any meaningful way. Saying this kind of thing today is a bit beyond the pale. But what's changed? Not the science. Despite vague and inconclusive speculation about brain structure, there is no physiological evidence. Trans remains categorically different from any other identity claim. Even the most virulent homophobe can admit that men can and do have sex with other men. To support Boylan, on the other hand, his loved ones have to accept a completely subjective metaphysical proposition about reality that contradicts human instinct and experience. At best, it's unprovable and utterly impractical. At worst, it's a delusion with the potential to destroy lives. Rousseau is asking Boylan to think of other people, to consider that your identity is not just up to you. Who you are is also who you are to other people. But with trans, self-actualization trumps any social or familial obligations. Boylan is a baby boomer, and his story has the sort of anodyne, follow-your-bliss, self-fulfillment arc common to that generation. Not to mention the selfish, kids-are-resilient attitude that launched a million divorces. There's nothing threatening about his final form, a nice, affluent, liberal white woman who just wants everyone to get along. And this is the standard gender dysphoria narrative, a woman born in a man's body, which reached its apogee with Caitlyn Jenner about a decade later, a sentimental tale of struggle and courage and ultimately triumph, to which the only appropriate response is compassion and applause. It's just an update of the old middle-aged guy comes out as gay story, famously exemplified by New Jersey Governor James McGreevy about 20 years ago. His wife and kid got shoved aside too. They were part of the lie he was living after all. After she stood there smiling by his side as he gave a press conference about cheating on her with a guy. Around the same time that Jennifer Finney Boylan made his debut, people 
we're starting to question that old gender dysphoria story. Sexologist Michael Bailey's 2003 book, The Man Who Would Be Queen, popularized a theory that some male-to-female transsexuals are motivated by autogynephilia, the tendency to get sexually aroused by thinking of themselves as a woman. This is very controversial among trans activists for obvious reasons, and they did their best to hound Bailey and try to destroy his career. Autogynephilia makes transitioning seem a little less courageous and a little more creepy, especially when you're talking about opening up locker rooms and other woman-only spaces to anyone who says they're a female especially when said females retain their penises and attraction to women, as with the swimmer Leah Thomas. So we're not allowed to talk about autogynephilia. Does that mean that every male-to-female transsexual suffers from gender dysphoria? No. And it's very gauche of you to assume that. In fact, if any man demands that you treat him as a woman, you have no right to ask for a reason. That is what is known in the trans community as gatekeeping. It's funny, by the way, that leftist discourse is so obsessed with colonialism because this is essentially men colonizing femaleness. Femaleness is no longer a sovereign territory. The border is open and its resources are up for grabs. And any woman who complains is a turf and also might get punched in the face. Now, some colonizers are more respectful than others, but all are there for self-interested reasons with no real legal or moral justification. They simply have to declare, I am woman, hear me roar. Talk about a patriarchal power grab. The writer and academic Grace Lavery, an English professor at Berkeley, is a good example of current trans woman entitlement. In his 2022 memoir, Please Miss, he makes it clear that your confusion or dismay about who's a man and who's a woman is your problem and just means you're uptight. Common sense is, by definition, the conservative ideology of the ruling class. Also, Lavery writes, pointing out that the emperor has no clothes is the political gesture of a child. Revolutionary consciousness is fostered in the dialectical position of the person who knows the truth very well and takes pleasure in the beauty of invisible finery even so, refusing to accede to the bourgeois reality principle for even a moment. In other words, trans is a kind of exquisite game that normies don't get. Which is fine, just don't expect us to play it. Why? should I consider Grace Lavery a woman? Well, Lavery's not really interested in providing an answer to that. The whole book is written with this exhausting, uh, far less charming and clever than it thinks it is, genre-switching lit theory playfulness. Lavery's pronouns are she and hers, and as far as I can tell, he expects legal and social recognition as a woman and assumes the right for any man to claim female status through self-identification. But neither this book nor his more recent book offer any serious political argument for why the overwhelming majority of us who are not trans should accept it. In many ways, Lavery is your typical ineffectual academic. Beneath the transgressive posturing is the usual low-stakes jockeying for status and approval, 
I can't help noting that his coming out as trans happened just when he was up for tenure. No regular person is going to read this stuff, and I doubt Lavery wants them to. For a more illuminating and truly disturbing perspective on the current state of trans, we can turn to Andrea Long Chu, who a few months ago won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism. The news of this had people revisiting his 2018 New York Times essay called My New Vagina Won't Make Me Happy. In it, Chu writes, Until the day I die, my body will regard the vagina as a wound. As a result, it will require regular, painful attention to maintain. This is what I want, but there's no guarantee it will make me happier. In fact, I don't expect it to. That shouldn't disqualify me from getting it. I like to say that being trans is the second worst thing that ever happened to me. The worst was being born a boy. He then mentions both the standard conservative argument against surgery, that it is unkind and harmful, like drawing a bath for a suicidal person and handing them a razor, and the liberal argument that surgery is actually the way to ease the suffering of people with gender dysphoria and should be made available. And Chu rejects both of these. He says, I feel demonstrably worse since I started on hormones. Like many of my trans friends, I've watched my dysphoria balloon since I began transition. I now feel very strongly about the length of my index fingers, enough that I will sometimes shyly unthread my hand from my girlfriends as we walk down the street. When she tells me I'm beautiful, I resent it. I've been outside. I know what beautiful looks like. Don't patronize me. I was not suicidal before hormones. Now I often am. Nothing, not even surgery, will grant me the mute simplicity of having always been a woman. I will live with this or I won't. That's fine. The negative passions, grief, self-loathing, shame, regret, are as much a human right as universal health care or food. There are no good outcomes in transition. There are only people. There are only people begging to be taken seriously. Where Lavery is coy and evasive, Chu is shockingly blunt and honest. Here's a rare acknowledgement that transitioning doesn't work. It cannot make him a woman in any meaningful way, and yet he still wants it. Elsewhere, Chu admits that his dysphoria was awakened or enabled by his autogynephilic porn habit. So Chu really is the embodiment of a transphobe's worst stereotype, a pervert who wants to co-opt femininity, at least partially for sexual gratification, to the extent that he's willing to mutilate himself. To be fair, plenty of trans people disagree with Chu's pessimistic view of medical transition, and Chu himself acknowledges that some trans people are satisfied with their surgery. But how do we really know? Chu wants us to take his pain seriously as long as we do so completely on his terms, as long as we don't dare deprive him of the medical intervention his pain has driven him to want. But that's not real compassion. He says he has a right to indulge his mental illness, but society has a right to protect itself and to set boundaries for what is acceptable. 
and to say no to rejecting a billion years of sexual dimorphism and thousands of years of the practical, instinctive separation of humanity into male and female. What exactly is it to be trans? What does it feel like? Is there a solution for it? None of the accounts we've looked at have much of an answer. Robert Eads just wants to live her life. Jennifer Boylan slots himself into the mainstream, prepackaged narrative of courage and self-discovery, while Grace Lavery chooses a more pretentious and fashionable, but no less prepackaged or lucrative story of endlessly irresolvable postmodern ambiguity. Andrea Long Chu at least doesn't condescend to us. For Chu, the painful, unsatisfiable yearning of trans makes sense because that's how life is. We're all looking for something to make us whole, nothing will, and then we die. As unpleasant and nihilistic as Chu's thinking is, it does offer a genuine way in to understanding the trans experience. And it echoes the work of one of the first modern trans women to write about being trans, and arguably the only transgender person to do so with truly first-rate skill and talent. Jan Morris, who was born James Morris, was already well-established as a journalist and writer when he had sex reassignment surgery in 1972 at age 45. He was the only journalist accompanying the 1953 British Mount Everest expedition and was the first to report Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary's successful ascent. He had already written a number of well-received books, including essay collections, histories, and travel writing. Post-surgery, Jan Morris would go on to write many more until his death in 2020 at age 94. While he didn't try to hide his background, he grew weary of discussing it or writing about it to the extent that it is almost a footnote in his career. He did, however, discuss his gender identity in his 1974 memoir, Conundrum. When Morris died, poet and Harvard University professor Stephanie Burt, himself a trans woman, published an appreciation of Conundrum in the Paris Review. For Burt, the book has great personal significance as it was the first time he had seen his deep discomfort with his sex reflected back at him by someone with a very sophisticated literary sensibility. At the same time, Bert takes pains not to reduce Morris to some kind of one-dimensional gender pioneer. He quotes Morris's beautifully evocative descriptions of Mount Everest as well as Venice and ranks him, correctly it seems to me, What's interesting about Conundrum is that because it predates the orthodoxy that has settled around trans, Morris can write what he thinks is true without any agenda. And one of the things he does is to make a distinction between what he calls a true transsexual like himself and other trans people. Morris writes, I am one of the lucky few there are people of many kinds who have set out on the same path, and by and large, they are among the unhappiest people on the face of the earth. I have met some and corresponded with many more. Some have achieved surgery, some merely pine for it, and every complication of the sexual urge, 
every tangle of social neurosis is to be found somewhere in their anxieties. And these are clever, articulate people. I do not speak of all the poor castaways of intersex, the misguided homosexuals, the transvestites, the psychotic exhibitionists who tumble through this half-world like painted clowns, pitiful to others and often horrible to themselves. Welcome to 2023. Morris writes clearly. He doesn't play the silly postmodern genre pastiche games that Lavery does, and he doesn't display the blinkered self-obsession of Jennifer Finney Boylan. And to be fair, unlike Chu, he actually seems to have lived very happily for 40 years as a woman after surgery. He remained very close with his wife and four children. And as uncomfortable as Morris found his life as a male, he's adamant that if surgery weren't an option, he would have taken a knife and done it himself. He looks back on who he was with an equanimity we don't encounter much in this era of dead naming. Morris doesn't hate who he was. In one beautiful passage, he recalls his time on Mount Everest and invites the reader to imagine the joy he felt navigating this terrain at his physical peak as a 26-year-old man. He writes, But imagine now the young man's condition. First, he is constant against this inconstant background. His body is running not in gusts and squalls, but at a steady high speed. He actually tingles with strength and energy, as though sparks might fly from his skin in the dark. Nothing sags in him. His body has no spare weight upon it, only muscles made supple by exercise. When, in the bright Himalayan morning, he emerges from his tent to make the long trek down the mountain to the Kumbu Glacier below, it is as though he could leap down there in gigantic strides, singing as he goes. And when, the same evening perhaps, he labors up again through the driving snow, it is not a misery but a challenge to him, something to be outfaced, something actually to be enjoyed as the deep snow drags at his feet, the water trickles down the back of his neck, and his face thickens with cold ice and wind. There is no hardship to it, for it is not imposed upon him. He is the master. He feels that anything is possible to him, and that his relative position to events will always remain the same. He does not have to wonder what his form will be tomorrow, for it will be the same as it is today. His mind, like his body, is tuned to the job and will not splutter or falter. It is this feeling of unfluctuating control, I think, that women cannot share. And it springs, of course, not from the intellect or the personality, nor even so much from upbringing, but specifically from the body. The male body may be ungenerous, even uncreative in the deepest kind, but when it is working properly, it is a marvelous thing to inhabit. I admit it in retrospect more than I did at the time, and I look back to those moments of supreme male fitness as one remembers champagne or a morning swim. That is a very compelling description of the visceral appeal of masculinity. And yet Morris gave all that up to be a woman. And what's notable is how little attention Morris gives to the physical when describing his life as a woman. Taking us through a typical day, walking into town to the market, he mentions his skirt and high heels and lipstick, but he doesn't dwell on them or on how others perceive him. 
What's far more important is how his own perceptions have changed. He now feels what he calls an instant contact with the world around him. He writes, I look at the place more intimately, perhaps because I feel myself integral to the city's life at last. I am no longer the utterly detached, the almost alienated observer of the scene. I am one with it, linked by an eager empathy with the homelier things about it, the life of kitchen and garden, the children and the pets, shopping and unimportant talk. The pleasures here are far less rooted in the body than the swim or glass of champagne to which he likens being a male. Femaleness isn't just different. For Morris, it's something more profound. In fact, he regards his desire to be a woman as a spiritual quest for a transcendent ideal. Unlike many trans women who mourn their never-experienced girlhoods, Morris seems glad he waited until middle age. Because his feminine ideal turns out to be menopausal. As he writes, The nearest humanity approaches to perfection is in the persons of kind, intelligent, and healthy women of a certain age, no longer shackled by the mechanisms of sex, but creative still in other kinds, aware still in their love and sensuality, graceful in experience, past ambition, but never beyond aspiration. Trans as transcendence, as a kind of religion, is nothing new. We see that in many of our contemporary gender prophets. But their faith developed in response to a void uh, in a world that was already becoming post-Christian. Morris, on the other hand, was born in 1926, and he experienced his gender confusion in the context of a much more robust and tangible Christianity, specifically that of the Church of England. When Morris was nine, he entered the University of Oxford as a member of the choir school at Christ Church College. This traditional Anglican upbringing was a formative influence on Morris, and not as a negative influence, as is typical in so many stories of LGBT self-discovery. Instead, the church's liturgy and ritual and aesthetics first gave Morris the language he needed to understand who he was. Despite his upbringing, Morris claims he was never a Christian believer, even as a child. He goes so far as to suggest that all of the beautiful old churches be put to some more practical use. How very Reddit atheist of him. And yet... Towards the end of conundrum, Morris continues to frame his life as a spiritual journey. He writes, I can never be as other people. The unity I sought, I know now, was more than a unity of sex and gender, and reached toward a higher ideal, that there is neither man nor woman. So I do not mind my continuing ambiguity. I have lived the life of man. I live now the life of woman. And one day, perhaps, I shall transcend both, if not in person, then perhaps in art, if not here, then somewhere else. Is there a way to attain this kind of transcendence where there is neither man nor woman? Isn't that what those identifying as non-binary seek? That wasn't a category available to Morris, but maybe it would have been a good fit. Or maybe transcendence is not to be found in this life or in this world. To quote St. Paul in his letter to the Galatians, 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The call that Morris felt was to look within. He has that in common with your typical post-Christian seeker of today. But what if Morris was wrong? What if what he really heard was God calling him to look outside of himself? What if the solution to his conundrum was not to plunge deeper into the self, but to deny the self? Maybe what he calls the transgender urge is misdirected, a tragically short-sighted reduction of a fundamentally theological problem to a matter of sex. What if Christianity is real? If it is, we should all get over ourselves, because whatever material or social advantages we think we have, whatever privilege we think disqualifies us from telling each other the truth, in the light of eternity, none of us are doing that well. We're all in the wrong body. We are all in a body that ages and decays and eventually dies. We are all suspended above the void. Each of us is just as dependent on God's mercy and grace as anyone else. Am I transphobic? It's possible. I hate and fear a lot of people I shouldn't, but that's perfectly natural in this fallen world. All I can do is remind myself I'm no better than they are. This means I don't get to judge them, but it also means I don't get to treat their suffering as so unique and unknowable that it gives them unimpeachable moral authority. I don't get to abdicate my responsibility to stand up for truth. And the truth is, however many ways there are to be a man or to be a woman, no matter how butch or effeminate or androgynous you want to be, those are the only two options. And you have to stick with the one you're born with. This is crucial both for the flourishing of individual men and women and for the flourishing of society. Because if we really want the sex wars to end, we must very clearly delineate the border we share. Good fences make good neighbors. If we really want the truce that Helen Roy talks about, we must first quell the unrest at home. For men and women to achieve any lasting peace, we must first be at peace with ourselves. Well, that's enough talking for me. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join me for the next episode of MF. I might have a guest next time. Goodbye and God bless. <laughs>